Of all the hashtag social movements, Me Too has proven among the most enduring for its truth, for the power imbalance it revealed, and because so many women had the courage to speak out. Today's guest tells a story about appearance, reality, and the facades that dominate public life, whether in the film industry or at the corner shop. She's Winnie M. Lee this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salvia Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by a remarkably talented young author, Winnie M. Lee. Her debut novel, Dark Chapter, burst on the scene in 2017. Now her second novel, Complicit, is in bookstores, and she's talking about it with us today. Winnie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Uh, nice to be here. We want to talk to you about your career and about your books, but talk to us first about your journey to becoming an author. Uh, when did you know you were a writer? Um, well, I always wanted to be a writer from the age of six. Um, so I just loved books and I loved writing for all of my childhood. Um, but my mom said it wasn't the easiest career in terms of earning a living, and she was right about that. Um, so yeah, so I, in my 20s, I became involved in filmmaking, another form of storytelling. And then sometimes it's sort of, you know, in your 20s, you don't really often have the gumption to, to kind of go after what you really want. Um, so sometimes it takes a big event happening in your life to kind of give you that drive to, to write the book and get it out there and to find the issues that are important to you. So I was 29 when I finally decided, well, 29, 30, early 30s, when I realized I really wanted to become a, an author. And, and you mentioned storytelling. What was it about storytelling that was so attractive to you? Um, as a kid, I mean, I, you know, I was just in love with fairy tales, and like in love with all the stories that my that my mom read to me. And I would go to the library and come back with like twenty books. So um, yeah, I think it was just being able to be transported to other worlds. Um, and when I got older, I traveled a lot, which was my way of kind of that form of transportation, but um, that kind of um, you know exploration. But at the end of the day. Um, books are even more magical than traveling in some ways. So, Winnie, your first novel, Dark Chapter, was a fictional retelling of a rape that you experienced, and we're so sorry that you experienced that. Can you just tell us briefly what happened? Uh, I believe you were in the film uh, industry at the time. If you can just, again, just give us a quick overview of that terrible situation. Yeah, so like I told Jim, I was working in film, um, and I at the time I you know really wanted to. I thought I was going to be a film producer, and I was working on um, fictional films um, for an independent production company in London. Um, as somebody who traveled a lot, I ultimately ended up settling in London because you know it was foreign, it was exciting. They still spoke English. You could do lots of traveling and um, to see Europe from there. Um, and then um, I've always loved the outdoors, so I was on a hike um, at the tail of a, of, a, of a business trip in Belfast when I was followed by a stranger, and um, that stranger ended up following me and assaulting and raping me when I got to a really remote area of the park. So that was kind of a bolt out of the blue, one of those things you don't expect to have happen to you, especially after you've traveled so much on your own. Um, and that's when I kind of realized that 
you know, sexual violence is something that happens to a lot of people. It happens when you least expect it. Um, and uh, it was so life-changing for me that I kind of realized, you know, I had to I had to write that book about it, but I also decided to become an activist around, around that issue in terms of trying to educate people, trying to raise awareness, but also um, trying to, you know, build a community of survivors and celebrate our ability to tell those stories. So that brings us to Complicit, which also features a rapist in, in, in the case of Complicit, a rapist in the world of filmmaking. Uh, it, it's a masterful book. Uh, I, I, I thought of some, of some of the great books about Hollywood by Nathaniel West, for example, uh, and Larry McMurtry and, and others. Um, so it gives us that look at Hollywood and a lot more. We're going to get into all of this, but can you give us just an overview of complicit for those in the audience who have yet to read it and we're going to recommend that if they haven't that they certainly do. So complicit starts um, and it's set in autumn of 2017. Um, some of you might recall what happened in that autumn of 2017 but essentially um, there's uh, Sarah Lai is her main character and she's 39 years old and she's teaching uh, screenwriting at sort of a unspectacular local college in Brooklyn um, when she's contacted out of the blue by a New York Times journalist who's quite celebrated and that journalist says well I've got a few questions for you um, uh, I heard you worked with this producer um, back in the day so I was wondering if you could speak to me about that. So um, that's kind of what kicks off the novel. And essentially, Sarah decides if she's going to speak to this journalist. And then we find out what happened to her 10 years earlier when she was working in the film industry um, and why she left and the kinds of feelings that might come up to the surface um, in the wake of all, all these investigations that were happening in 2017. So, uh, Winnie, you're going to give us a, a, a brief reading uh, from Complicit. So why don't we... Why don't we do that right now? And I don't know if you need to set it up or not, but uh, we'd love for you to do that reading. Sure. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, I'll read. Um, this is directly from the prologue of Complicit. Um, so hopefully it gives you a sense of the book. I see it now. I look at the free newspapers I collect on my commute. So much detritus abandoned on the seat of a subway car. In these crinkled pages, I recognize names from my earlier life. Faces I saw at a private club or an after party or an awards ceremony where I sat wearing borrowed jewelry and a borrowed gown, like all the rest of that vaunted posturing audience. Now, in 2017, I sit among a different audience, the ordinary folk who commute on the shuddering subway through Brooklyn, already counting down the hours to when we will leave our offices and ride the same way back in the opposite direction. We who pick through the papers to catch a glimpse of that celebrated life, what do we really know of these marquee names, these reputations now ground into the dust? Deep down, I'm quietly ecstatic and enthralled. What latest studio head or screen icon will find his past circling back on him? In horror films, there's the silent horde of the undead, dragging the villain down to a well-deserved fate. Some things we cannot bury, no matter how much we obscure them with gift bags and PR statements and smiling photographs. The truths live on, even though their traces can only be found if we're looking in the comments that were edited out, the glances and unpublished photos, the meetings which took place behind closed doors, but were followed by strange silences or one-way messages never returned. So we are all seeing it now. I saw it then too, but I pretended I didn't. I look at the life I thought I led and what I see now, projected as if from a missing reel newly rediscovered. The two images flicker, shift into focus. 
I still can't make sense of it, but I'm trying. I squint into the light, and I hope I haven't been blind this entire time. Winnie, I, I love that you picked this, uh, this passage because the, one of the themes that occurred to me uh, again and again throughout the, throughout the book uh, was this contrast between appearance and reality and the facades. Uh, you describe uh, award ceremonies where everybody's glamorous and beautiful, uh, but what unseen is the effort behind the scenes to borrow dresses, borrow jewelry, nobody really owns it. Um, that facade uh, is, is, is fascinating in the way you portray it, but I think it's probably very familiar to a lot of people. And I guess the question I wanna ask is, to borrow your title, are we all complicit in that facade? Yeah, and I, I suppose the title, obviously, when I was thinking of it, was more about how complicit are we in the kinds of abuse of power that happened, you know, in that industry. But if you think about it, like, that's that's all interconnected, right? I mean, like, why, why do some people have so much power? Why do celebrities have so much power? Because we've all sort of bought into this culture where, for whatever reason, if somebody's famous, they're powerful. Um, and therefore, you want to have that facade of fame. You want to have that kind of manufactured glamour, even though it is so manufactured. Um, so I think, you know, in, in the day and age that we live in, like, you know, why why did the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial get so much coverage? Because they're celebrities, even though there's plenty of other situations like that, other couples that have possibly similar um, dynamics um, whose stories didn't get broadcast. So I think, yeah, we've all bought into this facade of celebrity. I certainly click on clickbait that I probably shouldn't, but I'm like, oh, this person's famous. So I think, um, yeah, I wanted to kind of look into that and look into this whole kind of culture we've built up where some people are held up as examples of something or other. And simply because someone's famous and accomplished, we think they, they're worth following and they have some value when there's plenty of people who have plenty of value but aren't recognized. So, Winnie, can you talk about complicit in the context of Hollywood and filmmaking? I mean, you get into that in, in great detail in the book, but that's another level of um, complicity that, that you write about. Talk about that. Um, yeah, so in terms of Hollywood and filmmaking, um, okay, so I started off, and my own experience was that I started working in the film industry when I was 23, um, and like anybody starting out for the most part in in show business, right? You're, you're making teas and coffees, you're making photocopies. Like I spend, I would spend entire days like photocopying scripts and binding them. So, um, but that is how you get in, right? That's your foot in the door. And eventually you work your way up. That's the myth um, that you work your way up and eventually get your opportunity. But um, so we're all kind of already told that this is the power structure that we have to work with and right and you always kind of basically have to say yes if your boss is asking something of you right um otherwise you might lose your job and you might never get another opportunity so i think you know even within that kind of hierarchy of power like that is already setting up a structure where we have to be complicit to certain demands and certain expectations we have to be complicit to massaging certain egos um because that is how we get ahead in the industry that is how we advance our own careers There's there's, there's a scene too where you you describe um, the director, the hotshot young director, and yeah. the new money man behind the production uh, going through headshots, and yeah. uh, they're making kind of callous comments, uh, sexist comments, misogynistic comments about the attractiveness and desirability, for for lack of a better word, of of each of the actresses that, that whose headshots they're reviewing, and I, you know. I, 
I wonder, you know, the the the, you know, you've been on the inside, as it were. How real are moments like that? How prevalent is that level of misogyny and sexism in the industry? It's very real. Yeah, I mean, I, I think anyone that's worked in film and worked with certain kinds of male directors wouldn't be surprised by that, right? And I suppose if you're not in the industry, you might find that shocking. But, you know, for me, I was, you know, I when I was working in a production company and I'm, I might be in the, in the corner send, like sending emails, I would be hearing all these sorts of conversations where male directors and male casting directors and producers were constantly commenting on women and how they looked and what they do to them and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and you kind of almost just turn it, end up turning a blind ear to it because you're so used to that kind of discussion. You're used so used to that kind of talk. Um, so it was only after I left the industry that I was like, wait, that that's like not right. You know, I mean, like I, I as a young woman, I was kind of subjected to listen to all this, listen to this like very casual objectification of women that you just become accustomed to it. And you think, okay, that's how things should be. Right. And it's okay for men to go around and make those sorts of comments. And it's okay for women to be seen simply as sexual objects um, or fodder, as I say in the book and, and not much else. Um, so yeah, for me, that was very real. Um, and I don't actually think I was exaggerating in any way in terms of how, how misogynistic the conversations can be. You know, and actually, I, the part that sort of stunned me was that in some ways I almost thought it was understated. There was, there was an insidiousness mm-hmm. about it that it didn't sort of like hit you over the head. It's like, oh, they're at a party and oh, wait, what just happened? Um, it, it, it's, it's that, it's that uh, banality that I found really so enthralling because it draws you in. You can see yourself there, and then these horrible things happen. Yeah, and I think also, it's also young women, you know, there's some party scenes where young women, you know, let cocaine be snorted off them, basically, right? Um, And, you know, that does happen, right? And, And I kind of want to explore that dynamic of why do young women go along with this kind of situation where they're basically being objectified? Well, maybe is it because they think this is their end, this is the way that they can get a job, right? Or because we grew up in a culture where as women, you know, we're expected to be attractive, we're expected to, you know, it's it's considered a win on our end if we gain the attention of a, of a hotshot director, if we gain the attention of a wealthy man. Um, and I think in the book, I really wanted to question, like, well, why is that? You know, as women, we are capable of telling our own stories and making our own films um, and, you know, making having our own successful businesses. But why do we always kind of devalue ourselves to try to get male attention? Because we think that's the way to get ahead. Not always, but there is certainly kind of in, in the film world, there is that young women often are expected to act a certain way around men um, to hopefully advance their own careers. We need to take a moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. This week, we're speaking with Winnie M. Lee, 
a young author whose new novel, Complicit, provides a look at the world of aspiring filmmakers, the demands placed on them, and the dynamics of power and appearance in that and many other industries. Complicit is in bookstores now, and you can follow Witty on Twitter, at Witty M. Lee. I'm going to spell that. It's W-I-N-N-I-E-M-L-I. So, Winnie, why why is that? You know, Jim is talking was talking about some of the horrifying scenes, uh, the misogyny, and the things that were just accepted uh, by young women, also, of course, by by the men in the book and in in real life in in Hollywood. What is what is the power and the allure of being in filmmaking, whether on screen or behind the scenes, that allows young women or, or encourages young women or keeps young women in that industry, knowing that all of this is going on. I, again, this is really a question that I think that speaks to the larger culture outside of Hollywood. And maybe you can address that. You certainly do in the book, but let's hear it now. What is the allure of the film industry? Um, I mean, on one hand, the industry creates its own PR, right? You know, um, so like if you look at all the movies about film, right? And there are some dark ones, and I even mentioned this in the book, like, you know, there's Sunset Boulevard, there's Mulholland Drive, but there, you know, there's also La La Land, which in its own way was gritty, but there's so many films about, you know, a bright young thing that gets off the bus to LA and LA and wants to make it and somehow miraculously does make it. And that, you know, obviously does happen, right? But you know, by and large, it, it is, you, you're very much dependent on connections um, to get ahead in the film industry. So you kind of have to make your own connections. But I think, you know, Hollywood generates its own myth about how wonderful this lifestyle can be um, without actually showing the huge amount of work that goes into it. Um, and the fact that, you know, actors have to get up at, you know, four in the morning, right, um, to, to shoot every day if they're working on something, right? Um, so, there is this whole mythos about making it in entertainment, which I think a lot of people buy into. Um, and I, maybe I did in some ways when I wanted to become a filmmaker, um, even though I never wanted to appear on screen, but there was the allure of storytelling, the allure of you know the buzz of working with a team of people to create a work of art or a piece of entertainment that you know thousands of people out there could see or millions, like that is really exciting. Is that creatively? I think is that a form of power in its own way? Probably. I think it's all of these things. Um, but, you know, there's no denying that we are a culture that's very, very much tied into visuality, into entertainment. Um, you know, these days we go home and we watch Netflix, right? So if something's on Netflix, it has a huge amount of command in terms of the amount of people it can reach. Um, so, yeah, of course, there's an allure to that. And of course, um, there's, I don't know, maybe even a sense of legitimacy, like culturally, you're legitimate if you are making something that thousands of people could see, which maybe explains TikTok and, and YouTube and all these other kinds of um, other forms of entertainment that are out there. So I was going to mention uh, social media and TikTok and, and sort of, you know, the, the, the allure, the, the power of celebrity, whether it's celebrity, and again, we're talking now in, in the larger culture, whether it's celebrity on a small screen or celebrity that you might seek in politics. Some people go into politics drawn by ego and, and, and not necessarily for, you know, the, the most benevolent reasons. Celebrity is such a huge part of American culture now, and I would argue it has been for a long time, but particularly now with social media. Have you thought yeah. about that, and, and why, why are we so obsessed in America with celebrity, whether, on, again, as individual celebrities on a TikTok or on a larger stage? Um, 
don't know. And it's not obviously not just America, right? I mean, I live in the UK, which is equally celebrity obsessed. I think kind of any developed country, um, or, you know, any country that has a huge level of media um, is very celebrity obsessed. And partly that's because that is the media machine, right? Like there is an entire industry you know, we're both complicit in that industry, right? Because we're creating content that people are watching, right? There is an entire industry which employs people, which is out there mainly to try to make money, obviously, you know, PBS less so, right? But, um, you know, where it's about creating content for people to see. So celebrities are in their own ways created, right, by the industry. Um, you know, you'll read, you know, in the UK, there's a huge amount of celebrity magazines, right? Hello, or what have you, right? And so people, you'll pick up these magazines, you find out what, you know, this model was wearing or how she celebrated her wedding. And like, somebody's out there creating that content, right? And yet, you know, people buy that and they read that. So I think it's this almost a sense of intimacy and, and a sense of, you know, here's the celebrity and I can, I can read about her wedding. I can read about what she had for breakfast or her daily routine. And like, it, there's a weird sense of connection to this glimpse into another person's life, right? Um, and then also, I think that's what social media is about as well, like trying to find a connection with somebody who's more famous or a connection with a kind of network of people out there that agree with you. Um, but maybe we can say that's about the fragmentation of our society today where, you know, we're in touch with people over social media and Twitter, but we don't necessarily know our next door neighbors. Um, you know, we we move around a lot today for jobs, maybe less so, you know, during post post COVID, but, um, you know, we don't necessarily know our neighbors, right? Um, so we are more fragmented. So maybe we try to seek that connection through social media. Winnie, you set the book in 2017. Uh, you, you made reference to this before. It's the start of the Me Too movement. Uh, what impact has Me Too had uh, in, in the film industry? Um, I think it varies according to which industry you're talking about. Um, I think in LA, definitely there's um, a lot of, there has been structural change taking place. Um, talking more broadly about gender equality in LA, yeah, you're certainly seeing more female directors, you're seeing projects, bigger name projects and, you know, bigger budget projects being given to female directors um, and also directors of color as well. Um, because you know race and gender and all these sorts of I guess minoritized groups are intertwined in terms of access to being able to direct the big projects um and so yeah there's much more awareness there's intimacy coordinators that deal with filming sex scenes um you know there's a lot more practices in LA less so in the UK um partly because the industry isn't as well-funded here so you don't actually have the money necessarily to put into place structures of, to, for safeguarding effectively um and i don't know i can't speak to other industries so i mean there are changes happening that's one thing then there's also perpetrators what are we doing with perpetrators yeah i mean weinstein has been convicted and he's serving prison time bill cosby's now out of prison um but there were many many other people that were accused um and you know possibly found uh somewhat guilty of things that they had done um who i don't necessarily think have um served time in the, in the criminal justice sense so i think and certainly not that hasn't happened here in the uk in a lot of ways so um it's a bit mixed in terms of what's happened um because you don't necessarily have um perpetrators being held accountable and that's the big concern i think that's a big concern for me and complicit that fine you might have somebody like harvey weinstein or Hugo North in my novel, but there's many, many other perpetrators out there. And until they're held accountable and prevented from committing other trauma, there's going to be a load of other women that will have um, suffered at their hands. Um, and the impact on their careers, on those women's careers, is in some ways a huge cultural loss. So, Winnie, the book also gets into 
racism in, in Hollywood. And, and there's one scene that comes to mind immediately. Where it's a casting scene where they're going through photographs of people possibly to play the lead. Uh, and, and when a black person or a person of color comes up, the, the photograph is just cast aside and it's like, forget it, we're not going to do it. Has there been any progress in terms of addressing racism in Hollywood in recent years? I mean, it certainly has become uh, a much talked about and written about issue, but what's happening on the ground there? Do you know in terms of progress? I mean, there, yeah, there is a lot happening in, in LA in terms of um, just, you know, even opening up uh, the academy um, and making membership more accessible for people of color. Um, so there has been a really big push in terms of that. Uh, the Golden Globes, you know, has kind of fallen apart in some ways, right? I don't know if you've been following that, but the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has been accused of not being very um, inclusive in any way. Um, so the Golden Globes doesn't even really exist in the same way as it did in my novel, as an award show. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the big profile um, projects that are happening, you definitely are getting more directors of color. You're getting, you know, Marvel is making films that appeal to a broader audience disney's making films although marvel's part of disney right um but you're seeing and if you look at netflix like you know there is a lot more kind of uh, diverse casting that's happening there um you know things like bridgerton even for example you know where you wouldn't expect there to be people of color that you are getting quite diverse casting um so that that is a change um but you know for years you know we lived where in, in a little landscape where predominantly it was white people that you saw on screen so growing up as a person of color you never saw somebody that looked like you on screen if you were chinese or if you were it was a chinese creepy person that sells gizmo uh, you know that sells like the gremlin um to to the fam to the white family right um there were certain stereotypes of chinese people that you saw on screen and as a chinese person you're very conscious of that so so that is obviously changing now so winnie your eye for detail is extraordinary start to finish in this book uh, not only about hollywood but about america and about two cities, LA, outside of the film industry, and, and New York City. I want to read just one sentence, and then I have a question. This is about New York. One sentence. The New York summer had started in all its glorious messiness, the teeming of a thousand fetid parties and arguments and muggings on this concrete grid of streets. It's just a beautiful sentence. There are so many of them in the book. How did you develop this eye for detail, and then how did you translate it into writing such elegant prose? You got about 60 seconds, Winnie. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I love traveling, right? So for me, it's always about, you know, I love traveling on my own. Um, I love sense of place, right? So for me, in my writing, it's important to capture sense of place, which you can only do through those sorts of details. That's what makes New York different from L.A., for example, or from Boston. So for me, it was like my love for traveling that made me pay attention to description and how we can capture a setting and that or a character um, through words. Hey, really quick in 20 seconds, tell us about the Clear Lines Festival. Um, that was a festival I started in 2015 to celebrate um, the ability of the arts to allow us to address um, experiences of sexual assault and consent. Um, so we want to showcase art, film, literature, um, you know, uh, visual art, stand-up comedy being created by survivors um, to make us more aware of um, the human experience behind sexual violence. Well, it's remarkable work, and your books are amazing, Winnie. Thank you so much for being with us. She's Winnie M. Lee. The book is Complicit.
It's in bookstores now. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>